And what are they going to do? How are they going to handle this? Now, this test and all of the subsequent ones, because we're going to see several over the course of these chapters, right, where Joseph is going to test his brothers over and over again. All of these tests are meant to draw out and expose the hearts and the character of these men. Joseph is, in other words, going to see if they're still like they used to be. You remember the last time he had dealings with them. Didn't go well. He's going to determine if there is any remorse, any contriteness over what they did to him. It's also probably the case that he's strategizing in such a way that he can see his full brother, Benjamin, and so that he can see his father, who he hasn't seen in the better part of 20 years. And while we're not told exactly, so keep this in mind, while we're not told exactly what's in Joseph's mind or heart, what exactly he means to accomplish with all of these tests, we can say with certainty at a human level, this is like super intense for him. There are going to be multiple points throughout this whole saga that he has to leave the room to weep because of what's going on. A lot of pain. This is very human. You can resonate with this. And then also, ultimately, big picture, God is at work in this. God's name is not always explicitly mentioned in every verse, every paragraph. He's in it all. He is the one who is working to not only bring about the reconciliation of Israel's family, which is significant in and of itself. God is at work to continue his plan of redemption. And God is at work to teach us about said plan of redemption. So have that in your minds. Have those lenses on as we look at the text throughout the rest of our time. All right. So now back to it. On the third day, Joseph proposes a different test to the brothers, they're out of custody now. Instead of nine of them remaining and one of them going home, he kind of flips that on its head and says, hey, nine of you go home. One of you stay. I'm going to send the rest of you back with grain and provisions for your households. There's a famine going on, but then bring your youngest brother back and all will be well. We're then given insight in verse 21 of chapter 42. This is going to be a significant verse. Even later, we're going to reflect back on this. We're given insight into the thoughts of the brothers at this point. They, like us, assume that this bad thing is happening to them because of sins they have committed in the past. Keep that in your mind. They assume that this bad thing is happening because of sins they have committed in the past. And as we will see, that is, one, not the case. That is, two, because of God and his purposes in this. God and his purposes in this to redeem, not to condemn, are at work. They don't see that. We tend to not see that in how our lives unfold. There is a family argument of sorts going on before Joseph. Remember, Joseph looks like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. There's a translator's present, right? The brothers have no idea that he speaks Hebrew. So they're arguing amongst themselves. They're lamenting what's happened. So he hears that. They're confident that God is judging them for what they did. He hears that. And then Reuben, the oldest brother, jumps in for the kind of I told you so moment. Guys, I tried to stop you when we did this before. I knew this was going to go badly. Now there's a reckoning. Joseph, of course, understands every word and is wrecked by what he hears. For the first time of several, he's going to turn away. He's going to leave and have to come back. He leaves to weep, and then he comes back to speak to them again. 
And in all of this, this pointed human drama and these very human dynamics that we see at play, these serve as one reminder of countless reminders that God is God. God dwells in the heavens and he does everything he pleases and he works in very human ways and in very earthy ways in order to accomplish his eternal purposes. He did that through Jesus. Like he is not this ethereal deity that just kind of sits away in the spirit realm someplace, uninvolved with the material world that he's made. It's not how this goes. He works in and through his creatures, works in and through human beings to accomplish what he means to accomplish redemptively. God accomplished the most heavenly and eternal of purposes, right? The salvation of his people through the flesh and blood of Abraham's line. Through these people, as we have thought over and over again in the book of Genesis, who are just like us in their frailties, their strugglings, and their failures. He works through flesh and blood to bring about salvation. And it is a comfort to know as a fallen human, as a comfort to know that God is involved in the things that seem most earthy and most human. He is not divorced from them. He is always close. He is always involved in the lives of his people. Praise be to his name. And then remember in all of this, right? Remember the final goal of salvation. This is often lost on the radar screen of the contemporary church. The final goal of salvation is nothing short of bodily resurrection to dwell in redeemed bodies in a redeemed earth in the immediate presence of Christ and our Heavenly Father. That is the goal and what God has always meant to accomplish. Joseph returns from this time of weeping. This human drama continues to unfold. He speaks to his brothers. Again, he takes Simeon, the second son, and has him bound. And then he gives orders to some of his servants. All right, fill all of their bags with grain, put their money that they brought to pay for it back in the bags, and then give them provision for the journey. This is done, and the brothers have no clue. Then in the final 13 or so verses of the chapter, the brothers, they load up and depart. They head out of town. And when they get to the Holiday Inn the first night, right, one of them opens his bag to feed his donkey and finds his money in the bag, and they freak out. What is this that God has done to us, they say? See, not only are they going to look like spies, which they tried to deny, they're now going to look like thieves, too. They're afraid. And notice again how the brothers think of this. God has done this to us, they say. Like we can at points, they see God as this like tit-for-tat kind of deity, right? He's keeping a record of wrongs, and he's going to deliver the precise number of lashes we deserve. That's how they're thinking. In other words, we, like these brothers, tend to view God purely through an economy of law. But he is not just a God of law. It's how we need to read these passages. The Lord is not only a God of law. He is a God of gospel. He has purposes of not just law. He has purposes of mercy and grace. Mercy being not getting what we deserve. Which is the opposite of this kind of karma thinking that is characterizing these brothers. And that frankly permeates the church so often. And then when we say that God is a God of grace, by that we mean we get all kinds of wonderful things that we could never deserve. 
So they get back to Canaan. They tell Jacob the whole story about how the Lord of the land treated them and about the tests that he put them through and about how if they're going to go back down, they got to take Benjamin with them. Then they empty all of their bags and they see then that all of them have their money in their bags. And they are again afraid. Their father along with them, afraid. Jacob concludes that he's lost two of his sons. Joseph, a long time ago, Simeon is now in custody in this foreign land, and now he's going to lose Benjamin too. Then Reuben steps to the fore again and says that he's going to take care of Benjamin. He's like, Dad, I'll take care of him. Let him come with us. And if he doesn't, you can put my two sons to death. That's what he says. It's not a great vow, right? Hey, Dad, I'm going to take care of Benjamin, but if I fail, just kill your grandsons, right? I mean, it's a terrible vow. Jacob is going to, excuse me, Judah is going to make a much better vow in just a minute that we're going to see. Reuben, from this point forward, Reuben is the firstborn, which many are aware of that, that would mean that he would have a privileged position in the household. Reuben as the firstborn is really going to fade away from this point forward. And Judah is going to be the one who is going to emerge as a leader of the brothers. Jacob, to conclude chapter 42, Jacob declines Reuben's proposition, and we understand why. This brings us to point two, the second trip to Egypt. Point two, the second trip to Egypt. We're going to look at chapter 43 as we think through this for a minute. In the first 15 verses of chapter 43, the famine continues, right? So eventually the food's going to run out. There's a number of years of famine. There's no way to acquire more food. So Israel's family is out of food. They don't have anything to eat. So he tells his sons, he looks at them, he says, go buy some more food for us. And the brothers respond like, dad, you remember what the man said, right? You remember that he said, if we come back, Benjamin, our youngest brother, has got to be with us or we're not going to be able to see him. We're not even going to have an audience with him. Israel is upset with them. Why did they even tell the man about Benjamin in the first place, right? That's what he asks. And they're like, Dad, look, he interrogated us. How could we know what he would do? I mean, all of this, right, from their perspective, it makes no sense. But the providence of God is all over, right? Exactly how this is going down. In the midst of all of this, Judah steps forward. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do so that we don't all die. I'm going to take care of Benjamin, Dad. And if I don't, let me bear the blame forever. Let me be responsible. This is a better vow than the one his older brother had tried to make before. Judah makes himself the guarantee. He makes himself the surety, to use an old word, like for Benjamin. It's necessary that he step forward and do this because somebody's got to go to Egypt. Because they need food. So Israel agrees. He says, okay, if you're going to go, take a gift with you, take double the money, maybe it was an oversight before, and take Benjamin, go see the man, and may God grant you mercy. May you bring back Simeon and Benjamin. And you know what? If I lose my kids, I lose my kids. That's where he resigns himself to. Then in verses 16 to 34, the brothers go, they depart, and they stand before Joseph again who sees this time that Benjamin is with them. Joseph tells the steward of his house to prepare a feast. He says, hey, go kill an animal, get a feast ready. We're going to dine at noon. Preparations are made and the brothers are brought to Joseph's house. But again, put yourself in their position. You're being now brought to like the governor's quarters. They are terrified. They assume this is bad. They think it's because of the situation with the money before. So they approach the steward of the house to plead their case. They're going to tell him the story. 
They tell him what happened the first time. And then verse 23 of chapter 43, put your eyes on it if you've got a Bible in front of you. The steward of the house replies, peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. It's pretty incredible. This man functions like a prophet of a sort in this account. He's pointing to what is behind and underneath all of these happenings, all of these events. In this whole saga, everything that Joseph does, everything the brothers do, in all of that, the one who is writing this story is God. Your God and the God of your father, to be precise. He's doing this. He is orchestrating this. He is the one who has brought Joseph down to Egypt. He is the one who brought the brothers down to Egypt. He is the one who is going to save his people. It's pretty epic. The servant then brings Simeon out, the brother who was in custody, right? They get washed up. They get the present ready that they brought. Joseph comes in. The brothers bring the gift to him and then bow down to him again. There they are again, bowing down. Joseph then asks them, how have you been? How's your dad? They report that their dad is well, that he's alive, and they again bow themselves. They prostrate themselves before Joseph. Joseph then sees Benjamin, asks about him. Hey, is this your youngest brother, the one who you told me about? And then he blesses him. God, be gracious to you, my son. And then again, Joseph is overcome with emotion and has to leave the room. He runs out of the room to weep. He then washes his face and gets a hold of himself and comes back in. The meal is served. The Egyptians and the Hebrews eat at separate tables, but Joseph has his brother served from his own table. That's a big deal. He also has them seated in the order of their birth from oldest to youngest. The brothers look around at each other in amazement, like no kidding. This is beyond human explanation. Like, how is this happening? And then Benjamin is given a huge portion, like five times what his brothers are given. This too seems to be a kind of test. Will the brothers be provoked to jealousy because Benjamin was given extra? But it goes well. They all eat together. They drink together. It's quite a reunion and a party. It's quite an afternoon, right? I was telling a couple of the, the guys that were in the office this week during my sermon prep time that Whenever I read of scenes like verse 34 of chapter 43, it makes you wonder how incredible it'll be to feast with Christ and each other in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, like how great is a reunion like this? But then how much greater, like at an infinite level, is what awaits us. Amen? Yeah. Brings us to point three. Point three, the final test. Point three, the final test. We're going to look at chapter 44 again. Continuing to just track with this really great narrative. Verses 1 to 13, kind of first 13 verses or so of the chapter. Joseph again pulls the steward of his house over. It seems that this man must have known like what was going on because he's always involved in the plan. So Joseph must have kind of spilled the beans to him at least as far as the history and the brothers and everything's going on. So Joseph is again going to test his brothers. And this is going to be really the million dollar test. He has their bags again filled with grain. He has their money again put in each bag. And then to top it off this time, Joseph has his own silver cup put in Benjamin's bag. You can see where this is headed. The next morning, the brothers, unbeknownst to them, all this has happened. They hit the road. 
They barely get out of the city, and Joseph calls his steward, the steward of his house over, and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Go hawk the guys down, and when you catch them, this is what you're going to say. Why have you repaid good with evil? Right? Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you done this? You've taken, you've stolen from my Lord. You've taken my Lord's cup. Why would you do it? He's been so good to you. Why would you do that? The servant goes and does exactly as he is told. And of course, the brothers are shocked and they deny that they would ever do such a thing. And they go so far as to say they should. Well, you would think at even a human level with everything that's happened already, you wouldn't do this. And they're like, look, we're so confident that none of us has this cup in one of our bags that whoever has it will die and the rest of us will become your servants. And the steward says, okay, but he doesn't take them up on it full stop. He just says, okay, the one who has it will be my servant. The rest will be innocent. He knows the deal. They set their bags down. The steward searches, of course, from the oldest to the youngest, just keeping the tension. It's on purpose, right? It's intentional. And then, of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, and the brothers tear their clothes, which is, of course, a gesture of great grief and lament. It's like everything is ruined again. So they load up and head back to the city. Then in the latter 20, 21 verses of the chapter, we're going to see that Judah, as they go back, is going to step into this very representative role. They all get back to Joseph's house. They fall to the ground before him. And this is a very strong verb here, like face plant before him. This is abject humility. And Joseph just pours it on for his part. What, basically, what have you done? You, you realize who I am. Like You have messed with the wrong guy. Then we get to verse 16 of chapter 44, and Judah is going to speak. What remains in the rest of this chapter, especially beginning in verse 18, is the longest single like monologue speech by one person in the whole book. And it's pretty good. Verse 16, Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we say to you? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves rhetorically? In other words, we can't. We got nothing to say. God has found out our guilt. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah is obviously referring to what they had done to Joseph years ago. Obviously. God has found us out. What can we say for ourselves? We are guilty. Keep that in mind. Joseph responds and he says, no way, I couldn't do that. Make all of you my servants. No way. Only the one who has the cup is the one who's going to be my servant. And of course, that's the rub, right? Because Benjamin is the one that matters so much to his dad. This is the pivotal moment, right? Because Joseph says, only the one who has the cup, the rest of you go up to your father in peace. What will the brothers do? Will the brothers abandon Benjamin like they had done to Joseph years prior? Will they have any regard for their father? Or will they just trample on whatever their father cares about like they did before? Judah continues, beginning in verse 18. He is going to intercede for his family, and he's going to cast himself upon the mercy of Joseph in these verses. It's remarkable stuff. So he first recaps some of the conversations that he and his brothers have already had with Joseph in their first trip and in the second one. Things that they've discussed, how it's gone down. And then in verses 27 to 29, there is even more detail 
about Joseph and how the loss of him hurt their father, how meaningful and how painful this was. And also some poignant words about what the loss of Benjamin would mean for their dad. Judah makes it clear to Joseph, again, has no idea who this man is, knows that he has no ground to stand on and is pleading for his family's sake. He makes it clear that if he and his brothers go back to their father without Benjamin, it will quite literally put him in the grave. And then he offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Take me, not him. A few observations here. Three, to be precise. Observation one. There are pointers to substitution, that principle of substitution, all over the scriptures. And we, of course, know that substitution, me for you, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as far as pointers to substitution go, this is a good one. These, See, read your Bible this way. There is the story, definite article, capital letters, the story. And then there are a bunch of subservient, smaller stories underneath it that point to the story. Read with those lenses on. In this case, think about this. The son, Judah, offers himself for his younger brother that his father will not stand to lose. That's gripping. The son offers himself for his younger brother that the father will not stand to lose. It's a wonderful depiction of the heart of the father, God the father. And it's a wonderful depiction of the work of Jesus Christ, our older brother, as he is called. Again, what a treasure the Old Testament is. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. The Old Testament is a treasure for a whole host of reasons. And one of the main ones is that it, too, sings the one song of redemption and sings it beautifully. Second observation. Regarding Judah, what a complete contrast from what we saw in chapters 37 and 38. Amen? He is concerned in this account for his father. He is concerned for his brother to the point of offering himself for both of their sakes. As we have thought about at various points in this trip through Genesis, we thought about this in Abraham's life. We thought about this in Joseph's life. Praise God for his transforming and sanctifying grace in the lives of his children. Praise the Lord for that. We are not saved by what we do. We are not ultimately comforted. We do not certainly find peace, objectively speaking, in our sanctification. Our peace with God is on account of Christ and Christ alone. We can be encouraged by how our sanctification is happening, by the change that we see. And make no mistake, we will not remain as we were. Praise God for that. That has nothing ultimately decisively to do with you or me. It has everything to do with the Lord and his faithfulness to us and his spirit's work in us, right? 
and realize this, that just as God was faithful to work in Abraham and Joseph and in Judah, he is faithful to work in you, saints. He is faithful. And now, really quick disclaimer, you are a terrible evaluator of your own growth. So am I. That's why we need each other. We need our brothers and sisters to help us see how we're changing. And we often tend to be very just myopic and short-sighted when it comes to transformation in our own lives. Pan back. What God did in these people's lives, I mean, with Judah, with Joseph, with Abraham, we're talking like years and decades, not weeks. But trust God, pursue what's good, flee from what's evil, keep showing up to church. He who called you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Third observation. Judah's posture before Joseph in this account is a beautiful depiction of ourselves before God. We should be. His posture is what? What can I say? What can we say? We're guilty. You are right. We are wrong. Our only hope is your mercy. You see, what characterizes Christians? I think the world definitely has this wrong, and the church hadn't helped. Because oftentimes in the church, we make it sound like the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that Christians don't sin, or at least not like they used to, and non-Christians sin. Not helpful. The difference, what characterizes a Christian is not that we don't sin. It's that we side with God against our sin. We agree with him. We say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. What you say is good. What I naturally desire is often wicked. Notice, too, that Judah doesn't argue over the particulars of this thing. He doesn't quibble. He doesn't litigate. He doesn't say, now, you know, in reality, homie, like, we really are innocent on this whole thing regarding the cup. I mean, he doesn't talk like that. It's not the point of it. It's not the position that he's in. It's not the position that we are in either. Our lives, saints, are lives of repentance. Repentance is not something we do once. It literally is the posture that characterizes the Christian life. As one writer has put it, repentance is not an occasional emotion, but an ongoing motion. We move out of ourselves, out of sin, into contrition, faith, and forgiveness in Christ, close quote. Amen. That is the Christian life. And like the brothers will at the end of Judah's plea in our text today, we receive mercy from our Heavenly Father when we confess our sin and our guilt. We thought about that a lot last week, Psalm 32. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that message. At least I'd read that psalm sometime in the coming days. It is wonderful. And like lesser to greater argument, if we can look and see that a fallen human being like Joseph can extend this kind of mercy because he loves his brothers, how much more so does God forgive us and embrace us? May he give us faith to believe that. Point four. Point four I've entitled forgiveness, restoration, and redemption. Forgiveness, restoration, and redemption. We're going to look at chapter 45 now. In the first 20 or so verses, we see all the following. Immediately following the speech that Judah has made, the intercession 
that he's made. How is that going to affect Joseph? Well, he again is overcome with emotion. And at this point, he's overcome with emotion to the extent that he can't even keep it together publicly. Like he can't keep it together in front of everybody. He cries out to have everybody sent out of the room. He weeps loudly like everybody can hear it. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. I mean, this is one of those like, think of the greatest stories you've ever read. I mean, this is like a Count of Monte Cristo type moment. And he asks, is my father still alive? His brothers are understandably shook. It's like they've seen a ghost, quite literally. And then we have verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. If you have a Bible, put your eyes on verse 4. We're going to come back and think more on these in a minute. But let them just be read in our midst again right now. So Joseph said to his brothers, keep in mind everything that's happened. Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Mic drop. Joseph is, I think, in part wrecked in this particular moment because he is seeing his own life in light of the plans of God. He is seeing his own life in light of the plans of God for the salvation of his own family and for the people of Egypt and for the world. In all of this, God is the one working to preserve life and to preserve redemption. We're going to come back to that for our closing reflection. But moving on in the narrative, Joseph then says to his brothers, go to dad, tell him I'm alive. Tell him how God has used me. I mean, this, this is so like you get this, right? Go tell dad everything that's happened. Tell him I'm alive. Tell him how the Lord has used me. Tell him to come see me. I'm going to take care of all of this. Then he falls on his brother Benjamin and weeps. He embraces his brothers and weeps with them. And then they have a conversation. Imagine what they would have talked about. Then when the report of all of this gets to Pharaoh's house, everyone there rejoices. And Pharaoh tells Joseph that all of his family is to be brought down to Egypt in Egyptian wagons. And he will then give Joseph's family the best of the land of Egypt. I mean, this is flat out insane. God's hand is all over it. Then in verses 21 to 28, it's the end of the chapter. All of that is exactly what happens. Wagons and provisions for the journey are sent with Joseph's brothers. Benjamin, again, is given a lot more than his other brothers are. And then Joseph's exhortation to them in verse 24 is, it's interesting, right? Like he exhorts them, don't argue with each other. Don't fight on the way. You can't help but think of the Lord Jesus. I mean, he says that effectively to us. I've given you everything. Don't fight with each other. Don't devour each other. Love each other. Huh? The brothers head out to Canaan and they arrive and then they say to Jacob, we assume this is probably a synopsis of what they said. <laughs> Can you imagine just walking in the door and leading with this? Hey, but dad, by the way, Joseph's alive and he's the ruler of Egypt, <laughs> right? We're told that Jacob's heart was numb and that he didn't believe them. And it's like, bro, I understand. Like, good grief. 
It's a lot to take in. But then his heart's numb, can't believe it. But then the brothers, they, they give testimony, right? They relay the message. Here's what Joseph said. Here's what he said. And then he looks around at all the provisions that have been sent. And he says, you know what? It's enough. It's enough. Joseph's alive. It's enough. Here's the testimony. I've heard what he said. Here's the evidence. I see what he's done. It's enough. He's alive, and I'm going to see him before I die. Let the hearer understand, right? It's quite a scene. Brings us to our closing reflection. And this is effectively on verses 4 and 5 of chapter 45. I don't have a title. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 45, and we're going to look back to verse 21 of chapter 42, but I'm going to instruct us as we go. Hopefully it all makes sense. We're going to think about our God and the way that he is so good to us. Joseph, in his own words, Joseph was a man sent ahead by God to preserve life. In one sense, we could have entitled this sermon, A Man Sent Ahead. Saints, we too have had a man sent ahead of us for the same purpose. Amen? Like Joseph, Jesus was sent ahead by God to preserve life, to provide salvation for the world, and to rescue God's people. Like, this is no accident. Again, this is not coincidence. This is not like an over-allegorization of the text. This is how we read the Scripture. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent ahead to preserve life. In this text, in this whole passage, we look at Joseph and it screams, Jesus. I mean, Joseph is a type of Christ. He is a pointer to Christ and the volume is turned up to an 11. I mean, this thing slaps, right? Just like Joseph, Jesus was, think back to chapter 37. He was betrayed by his own. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was put down in a pit. He went to the pit. He died. Just like Joseph died in the eyes of his dad. He was falsely accused. He was wrongly imprisoned. He unjustly suffered. All in order to go ahead of his people to preserve life. And just like Joseph tells his brothers, don't, don't wig out about this anymore. Don't feel guilty about this anymore. Who does that sound like? Father, forgive them. God's hand is all over what is happening through Joseph in Egypt. We've thought about that. And God's work to preserve life and save a people through Joseph is a glimpse into what God has planned to do in this whole world from all of eternity. In the eternal covenant of redemption that God made before the ages began, there was a plan that God would save a people and that God the Son would come and accomplish said salvation. We talked about it so much, how what we get from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 is effectively the accomplishment of that eternal covenant in time and space. It's, the, it's all along, this is the plan. That covenant of redemption drives world history. So that plan was made forever and ever and ever and ever ago. Before even time and space were a thing, God makes the world. All of this begins to unfold. He's revealing 
through all of these types and shadows and covenants and all these things, exactly what he's going to do. You have the line of David established and kings and prophets and all this stuff in 400 years of silence from human perspective. And then it is as though the father looks at the son and says, son, it's time. Go do this. Think of how Jesus talked when he came, when he ministered on earth. He talked so often about what he had come to do. He talked about what he had been sent to do. He talked about the charge that he had received from his father. That is covenant of redemption language, right? He came in his own words to seek and save the lost. He came to give life to his people and to give it abundantly. Unless we get it twisted, because I I fear that sometimes I, I pray this isn't true at CBC. I pray, I fear that sometimes this occurs where we almost can misconstrue this in our minds like Jesus is merciful and wants to save us. And it's almost like he has to convince the father that that's a good idea. It's not true. The father is in this like the son is in this. The father planned this like the son planned it. The father delights in salvation. Think Luke 15, right? What's the point of all of those parables? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the prodigal son. What's the point? The point is, here's what your God is like. Here's what your Redeemer's like. Here's what your Savior is like. You know how that shepherd lost a sheep and he goes and finds it. And when he does, he calls all his friends and he has a party. Jesus says, it's like that in heaven when a sinner is saved. You know how that woman who lost the coin, even though she's got a lot of other ones, she looks, she turns the house upside down and she goes and she finds it. She calls her friends. She said, let's celebrate because I found my coin. It's like that in heaven, Jesus says. And then the prodigal son is that same message. There's a lot of whack interpretations of that parable out there that don't help us very much. Right? The point of that whole thing is that this son, lost by the father, right, supposedly lost, returns home and he's got this whole thing figured out. He's got his message. He's got his pitch prepared. I'm going to convince dad to bring me back in the house as a slave. And before he can even get it all out, the father says, that's enough of that. Bring the best robe in the house and put it on. Bring a ring and put it on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Let's celebrate because my son is alive. Stand in wonder at our God, saints, at how he loves us. He loves us. We are greatly loved and we are forgiven and he delights in it. While we're thinking about forgiveness, this really is the kind of latter half of this longer reflection. Look back to chapter 42 and verse 21. The brothers say to each other, this is as they're standing there before Joseph. They don't know he understands them. He says, they say to each other, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're talking about what they've done to him. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. We were hard hearted. We were wrong. And this is why this distress has come upon us. Keep that in your mind. And then remember what Joseph says. The brothers have been carrying this guilt. They've seen the hardness of their hearts. And their instinct, like ours, like we've already alluded to, is to think that this bad thing is happening to them as payments for sins committed. And remember this, that through this whole series of tests that Joseph has put them through, Joseph has exposed their guilt. He has exposed their sin. He has made them come to grips with it. To see how heinous it is. 
He has brought it out into the light and he has demonstrated that their guilt is a real thing. But then he says to them, when it's all said and done, what does he do? All that's true and come near to me, please. Come close to me. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves over this anymore. You're forgiven because here is what God has done. Brothers and sisters, Christ has already taken our guilt and our sin. He has dealt with it and it is no longer ours to carry. And he does not want us to. Like Joseph's brothers, we have committed grievous sins. And God's law exposes us for what we are. God's law exposes our sin for what it is. And it brings it into the light. And we are crushed by guilt, rightly, in and of ourselves. But then Jesus looks to sinners such as us and says, come closer. He says, come to me to find forgiveness. Come to me to receive righteousness and eternal life. Come to me to find rest for your souls because here is what God has done. He says to us, you are forgiven, which in and of itself is incredible. And then he adds on to that. Oh, and also I'm going to give you everything that's mine. Sometimes we talk in appropriate terms about how Jesus has saved our lives. Amen. He's done more than that, though. He's given us life forever. Amen. So for our own part here in the church, like what do we do with that? Well, for the rest of our lives together, and as much as it depends on us, we're going to be preaching and praying and asking God and encouraging one another so that we might believe and trust this, namely Christ. And the fact that he says, come closer, find forgiveness, find righteousness. Here's eternal life and here's rest for you. Here at CBC, we talk a lot about trusting Christ. We're unashamed about the fact that the primary takeaway from every sermon preached in this pulpit is trust Jesus. That's the first and greatest one always. If it isn't, fire us. Why do we talk like this? Why do we talk so much about believing in Christ and trusting in Christ and resting in Christ? Why? This is big. Because the word of Christ both forgives sinners and raises sinners to new life. You hear me? It forgives sinners and raises us to new life in Christ. So in other words, why is it such a big deal that we would believe Jesus and trust Christ and rest in Christ? Why do we talk so much about that? Why is that always at the front? Because Christ is our life. Because Christ is the power of God to us. Because Christ is our righteousness. Here we go. Christ is our sanctification. First Corinthians one. Christ is our redemption. The word of Christ, the power of Christ as heralded from the scriptures is what forgives sin and raises sinners to life so that we then walk in the good works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. 
There is no walking in the good works prepared beforehand for us to walk in in our own strength. We will do it in Christ or not at all. And we will do it together or not at all. We have been quite literally given everything. We have received an eternal, unshakable kingdom by faith. And so, as you're thinking about takeaways, you're like, all right, trust Christ because it's forgiven and I'm raised to life. Amen. And so we go because we've been given everything. Because everything is safe and secure for us forever. We've received that by faith because of Christ. We go and we give our lives away in love to one another and in love to our neighbor. Because we need that from each other. I need that from you. You need that from me. And because our neighbor needs that from us. It's what we do. May God give us grace that we may live that way. Let's pray.